Welcome to Science Stories. Welcome to Science Stories. All right, welcome everybody. I'm here in San Marcos at KCSM Studios, and I'm really happy to introduce my guest. Her name is Dr. Ramona Salcedo Price. First of all, I have to ask you, do you go for Dr. Salcedo or Dr. Price? Dr. Price. Dr. Price, yes. okay. She earned her bachelor's in nutrition, and she also has a PhD in nutritional sciences from the University of Texas in Austin. And afterwards, she was awarded, uh, she also did a postdoc in Austin as well, in the University of Texas in Austin. And now she became a tenured professor at Texas State University, right? Yes, associate Con professor. Congratulations. Thank you, thank you. First of all, so I guess you lived a long time in Austin. I did. And now you lived here for quite a while. Yeah, right? we, we moved here uh, when I started the assistant professor track at Texas State University, and uh, that was in 2015. How is the transition between Austin to San Marcos going? Uh, well, we have family and we're still close to Austin. So uh, we're kind of in the middle of San Antonio and Austin, which is a nice sweet spot to be. You can take a day trip to San Antonio or Austin. Uh, San Marcos is uh, much more relaxed and, and we're enjoying that environment. I, I, I imagine you definitely enjoy less traffic. Oh, yes. Dr. Price, you work in obesity and its effect on several types of cancer. Yes. So in order to start easy for our audience and, and to help them comprehend some of the concepts we're going to be talking about later, can you please define, and I know this is a really big question, but sure. can, you, can you please tackle what obesity means? Sure. Um, I think that answer could be different depending on, you know, what institutional organization and how they define obesity. Uh, typically, it's referred to as an index, the body mass index, uh, but that doesn't give the entire picture of what obesity is. So um, when we think about the effects of obesity and uh, adverse effects on health, we're really talking about the excessive fat that's associated with obesity. Um, and it can be screened for through a variety of ways, again, one being BMI, but there are other tex techniques as well. Okay, I think you jumped ahead of my, my next question I that did. I was going to be. I did. Because I always had this problem in my life that the BMI said I was overweighted. And I'm a, a, a person that does a lot of sports. And the doctor always told me, uh, don't worry, that you're okay. It's just that the BMI is not a good indicator of obesity for people that are super sporty, that have a lot of muscle, basically. Is that the case? Sure. So or, or did the doctor tell me that just to make me happy? You know? No, that certainly um, what the doctor was addressing is the fact that the body mass index or the BMI doesn't get at body composition, right? It's an index of weight to height. 
So with the BMI, it can not only uh, put someone in an obese category, or overweight category, and that person may have uh, additional muscle mass, it's not going to tell you that. In the same way that it won't tell you if someone is in the normal BMI category, and maybe they have extra visceral fat. So it's not going to tell you the body composition. So would you say then knowing the body, ma the body fat percentage is a better indicator? of obesity than the BMI? It's a better indicator of body composition, which includes uh, the adipose tissue that we think about for obesity. Um, so in other words, the BMI is a starting point, okay. right? Um, it's, it's one piece of evidence, it's one data point, but there are things that we can follow up with to, to really get at uh, measuring body composition. Yeah, and I, f and I figure it's widely used because it's so easy to implement, right? Exactly. Um, one of the things that makes it very popular or common to use in, in research and even in, in the clinic is because it's a non-invasive measure. Exactly. And, and doesn't uh, require expensive equipment. Yeah. And just as a reference, for example, what would be a healthy body fat percentage for a man or a woman of around 30 to 40 years old? So it's not necessarily with the age per se, okay. um, but there are different criteria cutoff points for men and women and depending on if they're in their reproductive years. Okay. So it's, it's, I'm trying to simplify, but it's but a, a really complex. Yeah, um, there are certain percentages, but really there are other things that we can do to not just, because you there are other measurements and techniques that can be used to measure um, uh, obesity. And so these are referred to as anthropometric measurements. So there are things that, that can be done that are simple to, to get a, a better reference on someone's body composition. So um, waist to hip ratio is one method, waist circumference, um, getting a DEXA scan would be a, a very, very precise uh, approach for measuring uh, the, the mass of the different compartments. Um, yeah, so there are, there are a number of tools that can be used to, to get body composition, skinfold test, bioelectrical impedance, all these other things. That would be great if, if there's other options in addition to the BMI to really get a better idea of this individual. Dr. Price, you, you work with obesity in the relation to cancer, right? Yes. And this is, this is even more challenging. Can you, can you define or can you tell people what cancer is? Sure. Um, before I get to the cancer, I just want to state that, you know, you hit one thing that's really important is that it's, it's very challenging. So on the one hand, we have a complex metabolic uh, uh, associated hormones and, and cytokines with obesity, uh, and that's a very complex situation. And then we have cancer on top of that, which is also very, very complex. And so we're kind of merging the two to see what is the relationship with obesity and cancer. And this is a really important question to address because one, the prevalence of obesity and understanding its comorbidities, which includes the risk of developing, not only developing cancer, but its progression to advanced cancer. Obesity is linked to over 13 different types of cancer, of which um, I'll talk about is prostate cancer and liver cancer. Uh, so it's really important to understand uh, the relationship with obesity and cancer because of the prevalence and the fact that, you know, cancer will replace cardiovascular disease as the leading cause of death. So um, stating the case for why this is important. Uh, so for cancer, what is cancer? Cancer, um, in simple terms, is unregulated abnormal growth of cells. 
But we can take that a step further because we can talk about malignancy versus benign. And malignancy is a tumor that has the unique characteristics, which we refer to as the hallmarks of cancer. And so these are unique qualities that the cancer cell possesses that enables it to potentially metastasize at some point. Not everyone will experience metastasis, but the potential could be there. Okay, so in order to summarize a little bit, cancer would be an uncontrolled cell growth that has the, the potential to become malignant and... Yeah, so it is malignant and has the potential to metastasize. Because there are cases of uncontrolled self-growth that are not malignant Exactly. Right? And those are not cancer. Exactly. And we refer to that as a benign tumor. Okay. Yes. Dr. Price, you did a really interesting review about prostate cancer and obesity. And you start throwing some statistics that I found, I found really interesting in which uh, one, of, one of those facts that you, that you state at the beginning of, of that review is that prostate cancer is the most common non-cutaneous cancer and second leading cause of cancer-related deaths among men in the U.S. Is that right? Yes, and that's a really um, uh, good point to bring out in that there's some things that are, uh, if you read in between the lines, you may not quite, you may, may or may not quite get it. But so it's the most common cancer, but it's not the, the most common cause of death. Um, that would be lung cancer. And that's often in the association with lung cancer and the uh, being the leading cause of death is, uh, depending on the type, often diagnosed at a late stage and the mortality rates are quite high. So that's in part why lung is the leading cause of cancer death. Now, prostate being the most common cancer um, and that relationship with it being the second leading cause is it is very prevalent. However, the, the treatment is when it works, works really well to a degree of almost 99% survival. Yeah, and, and also what you say about reading between the lines, it says it's the most common non-cutaneous cancer. So I guess the most common one is melanoma, is right? Skin cancer? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And then the data also says that 78% of the diagnosed prostate cancers are detected at an early stage. In, in your opinion, is this a high or low percentage of detection? I, I think that's pretty high. I, I think um, so too. But it's, I it's pretty high, um, and that's in part because there are multiple ways that you can measure and screen for prostate cancer. And since, again, it's the most common, um, there is uh, recommendations to start the screening process with, um, there are a couple of different ways, but um, we also have more information. We have a biomarker called PSA, prostate-specific antigen, that could also be used. Um, it doesn't, it, just because there are high levels of PSA doesn't necessarily reflect prostate cancer, that there just means there's something going on with the prostate. So that's also informative and um, also being able to, to take biopsies to screen for. Um, well, one of the methods, and everybody's thinking about this right now, I think, it's the digital, digital rectal exam, right? Yeah. Which, um, is, which is kind of an uncomfortable test for most people. I imagine, right? Yeah. Do, do you think this this uh, affects like if somebody like I'm I'm okay. I don't know how, I don't know how to say this, but there's a lot of like machismo out there, right? And if somebody has suspects they have a problem, do you think they would even avoid going to the doctor just to avoid this uncomfortable exam? Um. Sh so sure, the the digital rectal exam, or we call DRE for short is an invasive procedure. 
Um, and there could be certain cultural aspects that might be barriers to seeing a physician, uh, but not just cultural factors. There could also be, um, in addition to the cultural factors, but could be a socioeconomic status, that there may be barriers in general to seeing a physician. So I think there are uh, many factors that can go into uh, why someone may not be getting a digital rectal exam. That's super interesting, yeah. And you bring up a, a really good point. And I also, I, I, as I said, I really like your, the facts that you throw at, at the beginning of, the, of that review. And you say that 34.3% of the U.S. adult males are obese and that the, preval the prevalence of obesity among men that have cancer, it's even higher. It's 38.5%. Yes. And so there's like a 4% increase between in the, in the cancer incidence between... In general. In general between obese and non-obese people. Is this 4% a lot or? I would say for anyone who's diagnosed with it, um, that would be important, right? To be included in that 4% of additional people because of the, the association with obesity. I do think it's, it's biologically relevant. I think it's also relevant for the individual. Uh, but that was the number at the time of publication. Um, th there are kind of different stats that can range from some studies showing a 30% increase, some showing as high as 58% increased risk for prostate cancer. So there are associations with, you know, again, the higher, ins the higher percentage in risk for men over the age of 60. However, there is also in the context of obesity under the age of 60 that um, the data shows uh, contrasting results. Um, so I think this demonstrates that for men over the age of 60 that are obese, that there's a higher risk of, uh, significantly higher risk of developing not only prostate cancer, but having advanced prostate cancer, and that there's a 46% risk in dying from prostate cancer. And I really like the distinction between developing prostate cancer and advanced prostate cancer, because I, I yeah. guess you distinguish them because coming back from one is way harder than coming back from the other one, right? Right, and that's an important to make, uh, important point to make, particularly with prostate cancer, because with other cancers, obesity is associated with not only the, the development of that particular cancer, but its progression to metastasis. This prostate cancer is different um, in that obesity is associated with the advanced aggressive form. And one one way to to treat this prostate cancer is to attacked the androgen receptors of the tumors, right? Yes. And I know this, this may sound a little bit confusing for the audience. Could you, could you please try to explain how, how this works? Sure. Um, so I'll start with talking about breast cancer because I think people may be a little bit more familiar with, with that. Okay. Um, and so um, the same way that estrogen and estrogen receptor are associated with estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, one of the common forms of treatment is to essentially block the estrogen signal. Well, the prostate cancer is very similar in that manner in that the in androgen receptor positive prostate cancer, they're dependent on the androgen hormone signaling to be able to survive and thrive and grow to become uh, that malignant tumor. And the, and the treatment then consists on... So the treatment um, in terms of the context of androgen deprivation therapy is there are three different modalities for... Uh, basically blocking the signaling pathway. One approach is to block the synthesis of a testosterone ultimately from uh, the testes. The second approach is uh, blocking from the adrenal glands. And the third approach is blocking the androgen receptor 
on the prostate itself. And how do you how do you block it? Um, there are uh, with biochemical biochemicals. Yeah, um, there is LRH. Uh, there's also um, uh, anti. It's referred to as anti androgen. And and yet tumors somehow grow in the absence of androgens sometimes, right? Yes. Um, and in in this review, you collect lots of evidence for three different molecules that are good candidates to trigger tumor growth in the absence of androgens. Yes, yeah, so um, in this particular paper that I wrote in collaboration with a student at the time, Armando Olivas, uh, we were interested in understanding the different mechanisms by which obesity is associated with progressive or advanced prostate cancer. And one of the things to address is how are tumors evolving so that they no longer need the androgen signal to grow. Um, and so their tumors can evolve in a number of ways that allow them to continue to, to thrive and survive. Uh, one of the focuses of our research paper was one to look at the androgen receptor. So the androgen receptor over time when it's deprived of the signal, the tumor can evolve to have a mutated form so that it no longer needs uh, androgen to continue to grow. It's, it, ha it doesn't need its on switch from the androgen, it can turn the switch can turn on by the, the receptor itself. Um, and that's due to mutations. That's one mechanism. What we focused in on this paper, while there are- Which is amazing, right? From the point of view of the tumor. Yes. It's unfortunate for us, but it's amazing. Right? Yeah, the, the tumors can evolve. This is just one aspect of, evolu of evolution. But when we think about all the uh, hallmarks of cancer that were um, characterized and identified by Hanahan and Weinberg back in 2000, um, there are so many different types of mutations and, and different ways that the tumor can evolve to survive. And that's everything from need for oxygen and blood vessel formation and, and creating that growth. It's changing energetics and metabolism so that it can uh, exist in whatever circumstance it's, it's trying to survive in. Um, but w bringing back to the paper, we were there are hormones and uh, inflammatory factors called cytokines that we know that can contribute to mechanisms of resistance to treatment. Uh, our focus for this particular paper was inflammation because it plays such an important role in all of the hallmarks of cancer. And so what we found was that um, there were a number of inflammatory cytokines like interleukin-6, um, IL-1 beta, TNF-alpha, that all play a role in uh, enabling the hallmarks of cancer. Um, and how that crosses ties with the androgen receptor, because we're bringing it back to deprivation therapy, is that these these particular cytokines can kick off the same signaling pathway that androgens can and the androgen receptor. That's amazing. I mean, the, it's the molecular compensatory mechanisms. The molecular pathways are amazing, mind-blowing. And before we go to a, to a short break, you keep mentioning the whole hallmarks of cancer. Yes. I think it, it would be a good time if you could walk us through what are the hallmarks of cancer. Sure, there are 10 of them. Uh, so this was, uh, the hallmarks of cancer was written by um, Hanahan and, and Weinberg back in 2000. And um, it was updated in 2000. And that, that particular review paper has been cited 60,000 times. Wow. Yeah, um, pretty important for the cancer research community. Um, in 2011, they recognizing that there are other factors that can contribute to uh, the development of cancer and its progression. Um, they uh, included emerging 
hallmarks, so new hallmarks, and enabling characteristics. And these enablers essentially can activate any of the hallmarks of cancer. So I know you're waiting. What are the hallmarks of cancer? They can evade growth suppressors, avoid immune destruction. They enable replicative immortality, basically meaning they can continue to live even if they're outside of the organism because we grow them in cells. Wow. I mean, grow them in the laboratory. Uh, Tumor-promoting inflammation, that's a lot of what I've been talking about so far. Activating invasion and metastasis, so that's the ability for cells to invade their environment, which is typically not a behavior normal cells have. Um, inducing or accessing vasculature, so that's inducing blood vessel growth so it can get the oxygen and the nutrients that it needs to survive. Genome instability and mutation, that's that keyword of tumor evolution. Resisting cell death, so there are signals for the cell to die and tumors uh, evolve to or adapt to ignore those signals. Deregulating cellular metabolism, so they're able to reprogram their metabolism so they can utilize nutrients that are available. Um, and then sustaining proliferative signaling. So that the updated version that just came out in January 2022 um, in, uh, talks about more emerging hallmarks and enabling characteristics, which is unlocking phenotypic plasticity. This is gonna be really important for invasion and metastasis. Non-mutational epigenetic reprogramming. This is really important for nutrition because nutrition can play a role in how our genome is being regulated, hence epigenetic reprogramming. Polymorphic microbiomes, huge buzzword right now, a real important role of the microbiome, not just when we think of uh, the gastrointestinal system, but really within the tumor itself, and then senescence of cells. So those are the hallmarks of cancer and the emerging hallmarks in enabling. It looks like they're the perfect perfect bad guy in a movie, right? Yes. They they are so wicked smart. smart. They are, and they're kind of selfish. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. So we're going to go for a, for a short break. Okay. Um, remember, you're listening to... Science Stories. Science Stories. Science Stories. Science Stories. What a jam. Yes. What are we listening to? Uh, so the first song was uh, Selena, uh, Bitty Bitty Bomb Bomb, and the second song is Stevie Ray Vaughan, Texas Flood. 
So why why did you pick them? So because it's, I'm I'm really surprised you picked like a really good rock and roll or blues and also a really nice cumbia. Yeah, so I think these two songs represent where I'm from. I'm from Corpus Christi, Texas. I was born and raised there until my family moved to Austin, Texas. And so these are two artists that are really um, recognized from from where you know they are, Austin and Corpus. Uh, my dad produced Selena's very first album. He was a, a, a music producer, owned his own publishing company. And so I grew up listening to Selena. So, uh, That's amazing. Yeah. And uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan is, uh, yeah just SRV. Yeah, uh, Texas. So, yeah. Texas, Texas. As Texas as it, as it gets, right? Yes. Man, I'm standing out in the rain. All right, let's let's get back to it. Okay. <laughs> so, all these molecules that you mentioned that are associated with fat and that they create a, a good microenvironment for that favors cancer and and that they trigger cancerous mechanisms or, or they help um, these hallmarks of cancer. Do they come only from an our own fat or they also come from other sources of fat? For example, the, the fat we eat. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I'm gonna back it up a little and just kind of address what, my, what, I, what we mean by microenvironment. Mm -hmm. And that refers to the environment that is in close proximity to tumors. Right, so it could be not only what's surrounding the tumor, but what's within the tumor as well. Um, and when we think about these different molecules that I've talked about, these pro-inflammatory cytokines, they not only come from our own fat, uh, so they're they're secreted by adipose tissue, but also infiltration of macrophages that also secrete these cytokines. So. Basically, the adipose tissue is a reservoir of different hormones and cytokines that can impact the microenvironment of a tumor. Um, so that kind of addresses the first half that it does come from our adipose tissue or our fat stores. Um, and again, that visceral fat or the central adipose tissue, that kind of belly region and, and the visceral that's um, around organs, that's the type that's going to be what's considered an endocrine organ and secrete these different uh, pro-tumorigenic factors. When it comes to our diet um, and other sources of fat, such as the fat that we eat, that also plays a role. Um, we have different types of fats in our diet that could also, once they're processed and metabolized, can be made into different compounds that have hormone-like behavior. Um, and that could either be a pro-inflammatory type or an anti-inflammatory type. So omega-6 fatty acids that we consume in our diet can synthesize pro-inflammatory factors, and then omega-3 fatty acids such, you know, that we, that's found in salmon um, or walnuts. Those are going to produce anti-inflammatory factors. Now, the key is we need both. They do play important roles in our body. It's just when the ratio shifts such that one's dominating over the other, then that can be problematic. There are two things you mentioned that I would like to I would like you to explain a bit further, please. Um, what are tumor-associated macrophages? So tumor-associated macrophages, we refer to those as TAMs for short, mm -hmm. and these are um, macro or really they're monocytes that are found within the tumor that then um, differentiate or they take on the identity of a certain type of macrophage. 
And they're important enough to be referred to as you know, having their own acronym because these macrophages play an important role in activating the various hallmarks of cancer. So they're very, very important for um, how not only the cancer can progress, but maybe even how it responds to treatment. Are they uh, measured as an indicator of like, malignancy of cancer, for example? It wouldn't be a, a measure of malignancy, but it really can help characterize the inflammatory environment. Okay. And in certain cancers, that can be really important to understand the inflammation at the local site. And then you keep mentioning the word inflammation, and in many of your of your articles, in the introduction of your studies, you mention chronic inflammation. And I imagine this is something different to what people think when they think of inflammation, right? When I think of inflammation, is when I twist my ankle and it gets swollen, right? Sure. And um, I think you're referring to a different kind of inflammation. Um, one, uh, the type of injury that we would think of, that type of inflammation is acute, right? Mm -hmm. That's an acute injury that results in acute inflammation. Um, and that's important because we need these inflammatory processes to help wound, uh, heal the wound. Mm -hmm. Um, and that could be, you know, not just in the process of wound healing, but um, I had another example that I was thinking of. Um, exercising. Mm -hmm. Post-exercise, there's an acute inflammatory response that's important to help rebuild the tissue that's been broken down during exercise. So those things, they're short term. And the difference with chronic inflammation that's associated with obesity is um, that it's chronic, that it, it lingers, it lasts longer than the acute kind of situation that we're thinking about with a short-term injury. And how does obesity trigger inflammation? There are a number of ways, and it really goes back to the adipose tissue and the macrophages that are associated with adipose tissue. Both of those, they're, uh, the expression and the uh, increase in, well, the increase in expression and secretion of these pro-inflammatory factors um, are triggered by a number of things. Um, in part, it could be hormone uh, hormones. It could be cytokines that are actually stimulating this, and it's a futile cycle that self-perpetuates. Dr. Price, in many of your studies, you perform experiments in vitro. And I know this is routine and completely normal for you. Very routine. Very routine. But... It's indeed amazing, right? The, the fact that you can harvest and grow cells that are alive in a petri dish—it's it's mind blowing. How how is this how is this possible? Well, I don't take any of the credit for being able to do this, but the folks that were you know uh, decades before me that were figured it out. Uh, but so Alex Alexis Carell was an, a noble. And laureate because of this, because he developed, right? The, he or oh, he started this whole work. There are a lot of people oh, who okay. were involved, um, but really, the the problem when you take something out of its environment, it's challenging for it to grow on its own. So there were two problems when they were trying to do this, um, and I'm sure there are more, but two ma main issues. One, normal cells have a fi finite life. So even if they were successful in being able to keep cells alive, they, it would only last, you know, depending on the cell type, a couple days or a couple weeks. Mm -hmm. And that's not enough to be able to do long-term studies. Um, and then the other complication is that you're taking the important endocrine system that's needed to maintain tissue homeostasis or to keep tissues um, in that perfect balance of growth and cell death. Um, that homeostasis is regulated in part by hormones. 
And when you take the cells out of that environment, you, what we do is now replace them with a cocktail of hormones and nutrients that they need to be able to, to grow. But again, because they have what's called the hay flick limit, they will die um, or go into senescence after their finite life. That's different from cancer cells. And in fact, goes back to one of the hallmarks one I talked the about, the replicative yeah. immortality, is that tumor cells have evolved and figured out how to get around that hay flick limit. And essentially, the hay flick limit is due to the um, every time the cell undergoes replication, the telomeres get shortened and shortened, um, and eventually they, they undergo cell death. Well, cancer cells actually upregulate the enzymes that maintain the telomere ends, and so they can circumvent that hay flick limit and now have a hallmark of, of cancer. So we can grow them easily um, in the lab in part because they, they grow really well. That's one that's of their correct characteristics. That's, that's indeed amazing. And, and for people that are listening right now, you have to imagine that in a Petri dish, which, is, which looks like a dish, a mm -hmm. transparent dish, if you look in the microscope, you have a layer of cells that are alive and they're undergoing cellular respiration amazing yeah it's it's, amazing. it's really unique and yeah. um if you know th there's also some ethics that are involved with how the very first cell line that was created from cancer cells they were um taken without consent from henrietta Lacks, and mm -hmm. so that's a whole nother story that's a really interested. interesting episode of radio lab the podcast about science that I really like, that they, they tackle all these... About the HeLa cells and yeah. how important it's been for biomedicine. Yeah, I really, I really recommend it. It's really good. Um, so in your, in, in the, going back a little bit to the tumor-associated macrophage study, mm -hmm. you exposed several cell lines to serum that comes from obese and non-obese men. How was this serum obtained? Yeah, so um, there's actually a company that can collect uh, fr from volunteers, individuals that are donating blood, and they take information from these individuals and um, we're able to request and order um, basically whatever criteria we need and that we're looking for, um, and they can supply it. So you, you just bought it, basically? Basically, we bought it. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking you, you might have had like an awkward selection process no you go to the obese line you goes to the no obese line uh, yeah no we wouldn't do something like that um uh, it would basically be a place that can collect and no one needs to know how they're being categorized there is um prostate cancer and prostatic disease article that is actually part of nature right yes you mentioned that the syria obtained from obese men contain lower levels of testosterone and mm -hmm. you you mentioned it as a like a, a side fact, like it's common knowledge. So it was mentioned in, in, the, in the material and methods uh, section. So it was even like, yeah, it was not even a result, right? Yeah. Is this, um, is this so common? Is this I think for people that do this type of, or that are involved in this um, area of research are uh, aware of the hemodilution. And so in obese individuals, there are, um, in the context of testosterone and PSA, due to the increase in blood volume, these numbers are actually lower. Um, and so basically this was, m in the method section of the study, this was uh, my opportunity to demonstrate that the serum that I collected did reflect what would be observed in obese individual. Um, and so I, some of, one of the uh, researchers that's leading the way in, in this work, um, particularly in epidemiological studies, is Stephen Friedland at Duke University, um, 
who's been able to demonstrate the correlation of lower PSA levels and lower testosterone uh, due to hemodilution and takes it a step further and proposes actually establishing a new algorithm or criteria for the levels of PSA that are considered concerning or the levels of testosterone and even importantly, maybe the concentrations for drug delivery. Dr. Price, in 2019, so quite recently, you published an article in which you investigate the role of silibinin. 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 And you say that it, it may be a safe intervention for those with or at risk for pro prostate cancer. Has this study led to to something else? So silibinin um, is a compound that has been demonstrated Uh, not fully in prostate cancer. Um, it's only preclinical models so far that I'm aware of. Uh, Solidinin is a com bioactive compound that is found in milk thistle seed and is shown to be anti-tumorigenic, anti-inflammatory, all of the antis. Um, and so there, the factors that it's known to bring down for tumor genesis and inflammation are also upregulated by obesity. So I hypothesized that the solibnin may be an intervention to reduce some of those pro-tumorigenic signals um, that obesity is associated with. Um, so taking, this has been in vitro work. Um, we do, uh, we are interested in taking this in vivo to see if um, the results would be relevant um, in, an, in, in a whole organism. And then also in 2014, you contributed to a study in which the relationship between obesity and breast cancer was explored. Can you, can you please tell us about that? Sure. So this particular study, um, uh, I think, is a unique study because it combines uh, both basic science and epidemiological models. Um, it also took a really big team to execute this study. Uh, we combined cell culture research to explain the how and then the epidemiological to explain that there, or to demonstrate that there is an association. So this, this group was made up of uh, multiple graduate students. My contribution was uh, designing the, in, uh, assisting in assigning the in vitro work. Um, and so it was a mix of uh, graduate students, um, my PhD advisor at the time, Linda de Graffenreid, uh, Stephen Hursting, uh, these are, um, Uh, cancer researchers and also oncologists to, to be able to further explore the epidemiolo epidemiological component. Um, this is a really important study because it demonstrates, well, let's back it up and tell you what we are interested in. Mm -hmm. We are interested in um, one, as I mentioned previously, obesity is associated with postmenopausal breast cancer. So there's an increased risk among postmenopausal um, obese women and that had already been demonstrated by epidemiological data. We were interested in the role inflammation plays in that association. So in vitro, we were able to demonstrate that if you use a COX-2 inhibitor, which is an, an enzyme that can, depending on the substrate, synthesize more pro-inflammatory factors. These pro-inflammatory factors can in turn upregulate an enzyme that's really important for breast cancer, which is called aromatase, which um, basically aromatizes um, testosterone into estrogen. So it's uh, basically a really uh, important source for estrogen. And so we hypothesized that if we blocked that pathway with COX-2, that we'd see a decrease in all of those uh, 
factors that I just mentioned, and a decrease in uh, the physiological parameters that are associated with progression, like proliferation and Mm -hmm. and invasion. So we were able to demonstrate that in vitro, and uh, but the important connection with people, which is ultimately what we want to see the outcome. uh, It was a retrospective analysis looking at uh, postmenopausal obese women that had breast cancer. And we, ha- the simple question was, did they take NSAIDs? Yes or no. Okay. And those who had taken NSAIDs had a reduction in their risk of recurrence by, um, I want to say about 50%. It's been a while since I looked at the data, but a significant reduction. Yeah, that's and amazing. so that it's amazing that one over the counter, easily accessible, affordable factor could reduce inflammation to a degree that we could see that there's uh, and uh, um, again, it's correlation, but it definitely gives basic scientists something to think about and to start, you know, again, going back to these preclinical models to further understand why that relationship exists. That's super interesting. We, we unfortunately, we have to do a, another short break. When we come back from the break, we're going to talk about like more general questions, less, less hardcore science. We're going to go more for the general questions. Sounds good. We're listening to Science Story. say what a gem again yeah can't go wrong with stevie wonder wow lots of stevies around here wait wait <laughs> do i even have to ask why did you pick it <laughs> no and the, the song we, we were listening before the break was fantasy by oh yes mariah carey yeah. a huge mariah carey fan yeah yeah all right so Considering all, all what we've talked before and all the evidence that indicates that obesity is promoting cancer and many other diseases, of course, what do you think of the fat acceptance movement? I, I think this is a, a relevant question to ask. Um, and uh, one of the approaches is the health at every size movement. Um, and I think that's important. Um, and as I mentioned before, the link with obesity and cancer is multifactorial, and we don't want to create a stigma that creates barriers for people to be able to access health care, um, because we know that that's also a factor in um, seeking health or, you know, these, these barriers. Um, and so when I think about obesity in the context of BMI 
as I mentioned before, BMI is a starting point. And so what we really need to be looking at are the metabolic dysregulation, the changes in hormone and cytokine profiles that are then in turn linked to these various health outcomes, right, or these various diseases. When we think about obesity and cancer, not every individual that's obese will develop cancer or if they do develop cancer, will develop advanced cancer. So we as researchers need to do a better job of understanding what's going on at the metabolic level. Um, but, do you, but do you think it's dangerous spreading the idea that being obese is fine? I'm, I'm not giving my opinion here, I'm just asking. Right, and that's kind of asking for a, my opinion. Yeah, I'm definitely uh, asking your opinion, yeah. Yeah, um, I again, I think it goes back to there are people that are in the obese BMI category that are healthy. So it comes back to the individual's health. Okay. Yeah. Um, thank you for answering that. Yeah. Also, there's this oversimplification that, sure. that being obese or, or gaining weight is basically consuming more calories than the ones that you expend, right? Which is true, sure. right? But some researchers think this is an oversimplification and it doesn't help solve the problem. One of the challenges is our ability to estimate energetics, right? And that some of the tools that we have now are, aren't as precise. So we think we're calculating calories in and energy expenditure out, but if your tool, you're only good as your tools, it may not be as accurate. Um, however, there have been studies to demonstrate that um, in extreme obesity, severe calorie restriction does work. Um, but when we get at a bigger picture, we're thinking about lifestyle and dietary behaviors. And so ultimately, that's going to be an important issue that needs to be addressed. Um, uh, many uh, uh, various types of diets that people can take may work in the short term. But what needs to happen is the dietary behaviors and changes that are going to work long term. Dr. Price, we're transitioning a pandemic, or some people say it's over, but oh, we're transitioning or we're out, just out of a pandemic. And obesity is declared by the World Health Organization as an epidemic. Why do you think obesity is so prevalent? Um, that's a, an important question and a big question, and there are a lot of different reasons. Um, in part, you know, one of the transitions from the 80s is changes in portion sizes, um, the lack of physical activity. And that also in itself... Not drinking enough water. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> um, one of the challenges, even with physical activity, we can elaborate on and, you know, it... It could also be related to where the person lives and do they have access to be outdoors and is it safe? So, you know, lack of physical activity, um, food insecurity, and that is a whole nother issue related to the access to healthful foods like fruits and vegetables. What do you mean by food insecurity? Sorry. So food insecurity. Um, it's when you're not sure where you're going to have food. Or right. Not. So right. when you have it, you eat a lot. Right. Well, no, no, no. Um, is... Um, there are different criteria for how you can categorize someone as food insecure, but really um, in simplistic ways, uncertainty in when the next meal is going to come is one of the factors. So um, 
But it's not just about access to food, it's what is actually available. And oftentimes in food insecure areas, there are what's referred to um, as food swamps, which is um, uh, unhealthful uh, fast food options. And so that, that are also cheaper. So th there are a lot of different factors. Um, in part, the Western diet is also a factor. And um, as other countries adopt the Western diet, that there um, uh, studies have shown that there is an increase in, in overweight and obesity. So there, there's a lot of different factors that go into the prevalence of obesity. Would you dare to recommend a particular kind of diet? Like you said, the Western diet is promotes obesity somehow. Is there a, a, a healthier diet that you would like to recommend? So when we talk about diets, um, that's also a really big question, but kind of, I don't want to oversimplify by saying it's easier to eat fruits and vegetables, but we have to get at the issue of access to those foods. Of course. Um, but if we look at it from a, uh, a lens of obesity and cancer, for example, there is a record... Well, let me back that up. So the, the recommendations for cancer prevention and heart disease prevention, there's a lot of overlap in terms of organizations like the American Heart Association, um, the American Institute for Cancer Research, and the Amer American Cancer Society. That based um, with the American Institute for Cancer Research, for example, their recommendations are based on the scientific evidence at the time. So they create this really large report of the different factors that um, lead to their guidelines or recommendations. And ultimately, um, it, it is to reduce the consumption of red meat. Um, so again, for cardiovascular disease and mm -hmm. for, um, for cancer, there is an increase in fruits and vegetables and whole grains and legumes. Um, a Uh, limiting alcohol consumption is pretty consistent across the groups, engaging in physical activity, um, and uh, being at a healthy weight, you know, particularly for, for cancer um, as one of the recommendations, and reducing sugar-sweetened beverages, again, for, for, for cancer specifically. Um, but there have been, you know, we do talk a lot about that in our nutrition program, our, um, the dietary approach to stop, hyper, uh, to stop hypertension mm -hmm. um, has been demonstrated to actually uh, reduce individuals who are prehypertensive or hypertensive, um, uh, prehypertensive being able to, to delay it or um, inhibit the progression to hypertension. So um, that's a very particular diet that has been demonstrated to help with hypertension. Um, there is the, you know, different types of Mediterranean diet that, again, kind of overlap with the recommendations from the American Institute for Cancer Research and the American Heart Association, which is reducing red meat, eating um, more vegetables. And so you can see some um, similarities in the overlap of the recommendations from these organizations and then with certain types of diet. What about the genetic basis of obesity? There is a recent study published in Science that identifies a gene that is associated with lower BMI. And in this study that's super interesting, they actually went in vivo in this case, and they deleted it in mice. And they found that those mice that had deleted this particular gene, they had a resistance to weight gain. Yeah, so um, there have been a couple of genes that have been identified and Um, I, I think the, 
the obesity research is ongoing in this area, but the, the fact that obesity, the development of obesity is multifactorial, it's still gonna integrate genetics and epigenetics and the environment. And the question would then become in the context of maybe a Western diet, is this gene still important? In the context of high omega-6 fatty acids, is this gene still important? That's a great so, point. Um, I, it allows us to study things within a context, and that could be really informative, but all of it is so integrated that it, it can be quite complex. And, and again, we think back to um, when leptin was discovered, they found out that mutation for leptin is quite rare, and that what's more important for obesity development is leptin resistance and not mm -hmm. getting the satiety and, not having, and, and having those changes in metabolism such that it promotes weight gain. So it, it's quite complex, and um, again, because we're looking at this in the context of obesity as a disease in this state, um, and the role that environment and genetics and epigenetics can play. And I imagine they didn't include, because this data is available right now. We have tons of genetic data for humans nowadays. And if there had been a correlation between this gene and obesity, they would have included it in this study. I'm sure they, mm -hmm. so if they didn't include it, I guess it's because they couldn't find it in humans. I don't, I don't, I wouldn't think they didn't care to look, you know? Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, okay, so here comes the, r the random question, okay? If you could wave a magic wand and make one product disappear from the shelves of all supermarkets and from our lives, and, and this is important that to know in this, in this game we're playing that the product would have never existed. So people would not miss it and people would not protest, okay? Okay. What would the product be if you were trying to fight obesity? Is the I question clear or is it a little... Um, no, it, it's clear. Um, so I'm going to change the product with the word concept. Okay. And um, I'm going to say pseudoscience. I was talking with my grad student about this, uh, Carissa Grohl, and and we were, you know, we were, were you know, having a discussion about it, and and we boiled it down to scams and pseudoscience um, doesn't help in I think not just obesity, but nutrition in general and health and in cancer. There's a lot of misinformation. Yeah, there's a lot of misinformation and um, that's that's not helpful. What's a, the most common myth, myth that you think it's a, a big misinformation that it, it's going around? Um, this is where you're going to pause and fast forward because <laughs> I have to <laughs> think. It's okay. Think, think, think. Um, I think one is p uh, individuals thinking that um, cancer only survives off of one type of nutrient. Mm. So sugar is a very common, uh, but in reality, um, those who do research in cancer recognize that the tumor can evolve to, to survive off of various macronutrients. So I think that would be a common, that's one that comes to mind. But there, there's just so much. It's one of those, like, there are hundreds of examples, and I can't think of one. Or that's yeah, it's, one a, it's a hard, it's a hard, really hard question to answer off the top of your head. Yeah. The idea of this show is to, to portray the human side of scientists. And I have a guest who played rugby as a hobby, a, a scientist that who played rugby as a hobby. And I had another one that painted as a hobby. Do you have any hobbies? 
yourself? Yeah, so my humanizing hobbies <laughs> include, oh, I'm a nutrition, so I, you know, I love food, I love studying about food, I love to read about how um, nutrients can impact the body, and, and I teach it. So um, I love trying and cooking new recipes, and I'm always sharing it with my students, and so cooking, um, definitely. Um, I love to uh, maintain succulents. I have over 100 different varieties of succulent plants. Um, so How many? 100. Wow. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, some, you know, plus or minus. Some have made it. Some have uh, not made it. Um, and I also like to train for triathlons. Um, it's, it's, I'm coming back from the pandemic. It, it's been a quiet couple of years. But, um, yeah, uh, long-distance endurance events are uh, very, I like the challenge. I like the long-term goal, setting a plan, working the plan, and achieving your goal. What's the hardest discipline for you in a tri triathlon? Uh, probably the swim. The swim? The swim, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, a lot of um, upper and back strength. And yeah, so I, I have a harder time with the swim. I always feel like running at the end is the hardest part. But I, I'm, I'm not a triathlon athlete. I'm just saying from watching the races. I mean... I would think that swimming at the end would be nice because you're so hot and it would cool you off a little bit. Yes. My husband and I, we, over the summers, we would, when we lived in downtown Austin, we would um, ride our bike around Town Lake, also Lady Bird Lake. We'd do a 10-mile loop. Sometimes we'd jog, and we'd jog over to Barton Springs and jump in the pool and cool off. So we'd do a reverse triathlon. Swim is the hardest um, just for me physically, but I've trained a lot more on the biking and the running and practicing those transitions. And finally, Dr. Price, you're not too active on Twitter, but I saw that last year you tweeted to support the Botcat Bounty. Is this a, can you tell us about this project, please? Sure, I think it might have been a, a tweet about maybe fundraising. That's yeah, usually, it was fundraising, yeah. Yeah, so Bobcat Bounty is uh, Texas State University's first and only student-run food pantry that's been operating since 2017. Um, and uh, this was started by my fabulous nutrition colleagues, Dr. Leslie Biedeker-Friedman and Ms. Hannah Thornton. Um, and they started this with the goal to decrease food insecurity. So this is what they raise money for, um, I think once or twice a year to keep the food pantry um, open for our college students that need it. Are they still doing it? Absolutely, yeah. Is there any way people listening can support this? Um, yes, if you go to Texas State website and I think maybe in the search top uh, type Bobcat Bounty, I would imagine um, what would come up would probably be the first link to Bobcat Bounty, and I think they take donations throughout throughout the, the year. Um, also, Hayes County Food Bank is a big supporter of Bobcat Bounty, and so contributing um, to Hayes County would be, um, Hayes County Food Bank would also be beneficial to not only Texas State and Bobcat Bounty, but to the community of San Marcos. That's that's awesome. And people, if if that are listening and, and can and wish to contribute, please yes, do please it. Right. Do so. <laughs> it, um, it helps so many, so many students. Doctor Bryce, I know you speak Spanish. So. Un Pasaste bien. Sí. Te divertiste. Um, what? Te divertiste. Did you have a good time? Oh yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. This was um, 
interesting. And I, scientists are happy to talk about their research. So yeah. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. Remember, you're listening to Science Stories. Wow.